If Zizek scrambled the codes and deterritorialized, we need a productive reterritorialization. Yeah, exactly. But in a structured way that Peterson's fans would be able to internalize. Hey yo! Welcome to Owls at Dawn. We are just two dudes from Southern California who studied philosophy, politics, and religion around the world and decided to start a podcast where we could bullshit with impunity. I am Austin Hayden-Smith. And I'm Troy Polidori. And we're going to give you guys a two-parter for the patron-led topic episode. We're going to do a follow-up episode this week on our discussion with Heidi and David and talk about Zizek Peterson some more just because you can't get enough IDW and weird, eccentric, Slovenian, psychoanalytic Hegelians, I guess. Right, Troy? I think you can get enough, but we just haven't <laughs> yet. This, this will be enough. This podcast is enough. This After is toxic- this? Yeah, toxicity level reached. <laughs> we like to you know, like play a dangerous here. The on alpha boom. What's that? <laughs> We like to play a dangerous here on Owls at Dawn. We do. We're going to play it. We're walking that precipice before you want to throw yourself into the cavern. Um, so, yeah. So, stick around for that. That'll be coming up in the main segment. But, of course, uh, before we get into anything, we want to give a shout-out to our sponsor for the episode over at Mubi. That's Mubi, M-U-B-I. They are an online streaming service that has a, a constant rotation, what we have termed a slaughterhouse rotation, a 30-day rotation for films. A new film is added every day, and that means one film goes to the chopping block into the slaughterhouse at the end of the 30-day rotation. And they're amazing, perfectly curated films, indie darlings, uh, regional classics, old Hollywood classics, um, kind of underground films, avant-garde cinema. They're absolutely fantastic. Their library is amazing. And they do different regional libraries. But this week, Troy and I have had actually quite some um, – so there's been some synchronicity in our library. So we're going to talk about that in a second. But just uh, to remind you that if you go to movie.com slash owls at dawn, you get a 30-day – free trial, which is an extended trial if you go to movie.com slash owls at dawn. That's movie.com slash owls at dawn. So Troy, what are we going to talk about in our synchronic library, our, our synchronous, not synchronic, our synced up libraries? Yeah, so we talked about there being several things we could talk about on the movie list right now, including uh, Harakiri, the new, uh, not new, but uh, the film that Takashi Meige did after 13 Assassins, 13 Assassins being one of my favorite uh, kind of samurai films or you know far east films, but we kind of centered on a film that's on both of our lists, which usually doesn't happen, and that's one that neither of us I think had heard of until right now. Um, but it's called In Praise of Nothing by Boris Mitic. He's a Serbian director. Came out uh, two years ago, and let's just I want to read the the movie description of it because that by itself I think will make you want to watch this immediately as it yeah. did to us. So it says. With images from 70 countries shot by 62 cinematographers, this satirical essay film travels the world to deliver a treatise about nothing. With an absurdist charm all of its own, existential meditations are pondered with whimsical lightheartedness. What's more, Iggy Pop narrates, in verse, that, <laughs> that literally gets better every single word yeah. until the end. And then it's like Iggy Pop and then in verse. Oh my God. Uh, what is I happening? <laughs> yeah, and then the screenshot even 
that they use, the little, uh, the little, oh god, what is, is that Avatar? What the fuck is that called? The little, um, the, 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 the thumbnail. Jesus Christ. Um, the little thumbnail that they provide, that looks like a castle that I've visited in Scotland. Did you, on the Isle of Skye, do you know what I'm talking about, bro? I never went to the Isle of Skye, unfortunately. Okay. But it does kind of look like it's, that, yeah. You know the one I'm talking about, right? The one that's kind of jutted out on the end of like a little peninsula and you have to walk across this bridge. It's like super famous, um, but it kind of looks just like that. And so I imagine that it's going to be just remarkable cinematography with pondering and musing and poetry and some swearing maybe and who knows what it's going to be. <laughs> so, But I know when I saw it, first of all, the title jumped out at me because I was like in praise of nothing. I was like, okay, interesting. And then when I read the synopsis like you just, or the, the one that's the our take on it is what they call it. I read that and I was like, okay, I'm in. But it was late, <laughs> it, it was late last night and I had just, the Sydney Film Fest is going on here and I had just gotten a lot of cinema like input. And so I didn't want to cloud my brain i wanted to let myself settle a little bit and live with what i had just seen but i think either today or tomorrow i'm for sure going to be watching this yeah ditto and all i really want to know um is whether or not iggy pop was wearing a shirt when he recorded the voiceover <laughs> of course not he can't he, i've never i've literally never <laughs> seen him in a shirt every fo- how is he so ripped for like what is he in his 60s he's just at least you know, people, they, like, look at, like, Brad Pitt and Channing Tatum. I'm, fuck it. I'm going to put an Iggy Pop body shot on my wall. Like, that's what I want my body to look like. Maybe, like, as a young man, I wanted to have the fight. Out, yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally. As a young man, I wanted, you know, the fight club body, the Brad Pitt fight club or snatch body. But now, you know, getting older and then as I move into, like, my late 30s and 40s and then into my 50s, I think I'm going to want the Iggy Pop body. Have you seen him live? No, I never have. Is he amazing? Um, yeah, I mean, I saw the Stooges uh, live, and it wasn't obviously the entire original members, but um, it was it was quite the sight. I mean, he's he's just as powerful. I think I saw him. It was like maybe ten years ago, but he was still old. Um, and yeah, he's he's got an energy that's unlike anything I've ever seen. You know, you, people compare it to like um, Mick Jagger, right? Who's has mm. an amazing amount of energy for being 70 or whatever years old, right? But Iggy mm. Pop has like the possessed by a demon energy, um, which is very different and unique and kind of scary. And uh, yeah, that's that's a unique thing to see live. He's he's quite the individual. And if you juxtapose that with serene, scenic images, that it's going to create a really nice, productive dialogue, uh, dialectical tension. So anyway, so th- that's the film that really stuck out to us uh, at this point in time. So if that tickles your fancy if that catches your attention i would say rush over to movie.com uh if you are are already a subscriber to their uh platform then definitely jump onto that but if you're not then movie.com slash owls at dawn and you can get a free 30-day trial for that madness because it's going to be entertaining i'm sure and we also want to mention if you value what we're doing here at owls at dawn you can support us on patreon at patreon.com slash owls at dawn we have several tiers of support that you can uh, include yourself in and get things such as uh, bonus episodes that we produce, as well as the monthly newsletter that we write, including extra sticky leaves and shitty minutes, um, as well as the ability to contribute towards picking the next patron-sponsored episode like we're doing here. Um, so make sure you go to patreon.com slash dawn to get involved with that. Sweet. So you know what we got to do before we start the show, dude? What's up? we got to do the shitty minute. Oh, yeah. 
This is where one of us rants and raves about whatever it is that's grinding our gears this week. So, Austin, what's got you down? Well, so I had a different shitty minute planned, and it was about how I get frustrated with how different countries use different calendars, and I can never keep up with, like, Valentine's Day in this country versus that day, and Father's Day here versus the other day, and Mother's Days, and then, you know, when's Pride Month versus Mardi Gras versus Carnival versus all of these different celebrations, and I was like, God damn it, we either need to just have, like, one global calendar, but then I was like, yeah, but then it's like, what, world empire? People aren't going to like that. Or we need to just, like, I don't know. There's got to be some other solution. But then I I was going to rant about that because that was on my mind. But then I read an article right before we came on, and I was like, okay, we have to talk about this because I don't even know what to think about it. That's how fresh it is in my mind. Apparently, Mark Zuckerberg has uh, recently come out and made – a couple of statements um, about the human brain and data mining that I thought was something we should probably think about. And I really just need your help to understand this, but it really freaked me out. So I'm just going to read. You didn't hear about this? No, not at all. I don't think so. So here's just a quote. So this is from Zuckerberg. Our brains produce enough data to stream four HD movies every second. This is already problem. (laughs) <laughs> the problem the problem is that speech can only transmit about the same amount of data as a 1980s modem. So, Zuckerberg says, we're working on a system that will let you type straight from your brain. So, here's my thing. We can get into the philosophical, scientific implications or analysis, but here's my thing. Even if this is the case, if this is the case, let's just grant the assessment that our brains do generate that much data and that there's like a problem of translation into language that kind of like the the congealing of just um, exponential data output, uh, it, it, that there's some sort of uh, incommensurability there, right? There's some sort of excess that is always escaping from our linguistic capacities. If that's the case then that just means that data extraction at some point in the future is literally going to be something we can't fight against, right? Unless we figure out somehow to claim ownership over the very like vital impulses or um, data generating processes of our biophysical systems. Otherwise, if we don't have that, if we don't fucking, if we, if we seed that now, it's not about like privacy issues and things like that that I'm so concerned with. Like, we've already given up privacy, man. Like, I, I, I kind of feel like that's a battle that is a losing battle. Um, and, and yeah, I may, I don't know, maybe, maybe, maybe not. Maybe I'm just being overly cynical and that's overly rhetorical. But, but definitely in terms of value production and value extraction, which then is going to turn into wealth inequality, like, if these platforms are able to somehow profit off of these pre-linguistic, let's say, data-producing processes, then we've fucking lost, man. Like, that that would literally... Like, how the fuck do you take control over that when literally all of politics is based on something about language, right? Like, the whole Hobbesian, Rousseauian, social contract sort of... Uh, narrow understanding of politics is all about rights, right, distrib- right uh, distribution of rights, etc. And then even the sort of broader historical materialist one is about like social construction or uh, constitution of social formations. But if you don't have, 
like if you're only fighting that battle at the level of of language and the things that we can consciously understand, but nevertheless that there's still these data flows that are being that are producing exponential flows of profit that like precede our ability to even comprehend them or apprehend them, then we're fucked. Like there's literally no way that we could have any sort of equitable distribution of value production. Yeah, I mean, I love that your your first thought is about the political economic aspects of it. My my first thought, besides this is ludicrous, it was um <laughs> can you imagine how incredibly garbled and nonsensical thought language would be if we had it expressed out in text? <laughs> like think about how scattered your thoughts are and how really only you can make any sense of them, even when you can, which is probably not that that often anyway. Um and then how much condensing and restructuring we have to do to make speech make sense out of our thought language. Like if you could just bypass that filter of speech, it would just be gobbledygook, dude. <laughs> but that's it what I mean. Such chaos. <clears throat> so that's what I mean though. But if there's a way to take that gobbledygook, let's go like straight up human here and say it's just this crazy stream of sensory processes, right? It's the, just a manifold. The content of, without yeah. form right? <laughs> In Kant's terms. So it's just content without form. If there was a way to harness that, I mean, that's basically just a way of plugging our like electro productive um, vitality into computer systems for the purpose of generating data. But what kind of data, would it be useful data? Like, even if they could read that stuff, would it be useful I don't. I don't even know, right? Like, no, no it wouldn't somehow... be useful for the consumer. I don't think. I mean, come on. Like, the ability to map neuronal firing to information that it's supposed to be correlated with—that that involves mapping the entire brain. Like, that's centuries probably away from being the case. Really, I would have. To, I mean, not having read this or known anything about it, I'd have to imagine that the real purpose behind this is to basically get access to people's brains you know, um, as private mm. corporations and then being able to like just very generally figure out their moods or something based upon yeah. the state of their brain and then being able to use that data to sell to advertisers and to um, manipulate people into like buying shit. Like that has to be what it is, right? We don't want to yeah. use just your search, your uh, past searches that's right. text as information. We want to know what your brain's doing because that's 24-7. And yeah, they're trying... Yeah, they're trying to get deeper and deeper to um, it's some sort of way that they can that they can circumvent or bypass variances in um, the search algorithms, right? Because sometimes you know someone might just search for fucking stupid shit online, and it's not going to give an accurate representation of that person's like actual inner inner uh, experience, let's say. But if you can tap straight into those moods. If you can tap straight into that like pre-linguistic ontological disposition to the world, then you can like almost go straight to the fucking limbic, you know? You can go straight to that fucking pre-conscious, uh, pre-reflective, like those higher levels of reflective thought, thinking about thought sources of, uh, of, human, of human cognition, which is kind of frightening and freaky but if we seed that that power now it like i don't know man there's got to be a way that we just say no 
Like, we can't let you just... Or if we are going to give that up, then we say, yeah, sure, we'll, we'll, we'll give you access to um, true emotional labor, not the way that it's oftentimes discussed in, in kind of maybe uh, confusing Marxist or post-Marxist terms, but like true emotional labor. No, we can't just cede our true emotional labor to you as some sort of source of value production. We must claim that that is our, our common ownership. And if you want access to that... I'll sell it to you, motherfucker, but I'm going to charge you a crazy rate so that I get an appropriate return on my emotional investment into your, you know, data extraction systems. Yeah, you know, this is actually where I think having some training and you know, basic critical thinking or basic philosophy would be super helpful to the average person because you can really easily kind of call out this bullshit, right? Like this is what these charlatans in, in tech sometimes do, right? Oh, we're going to have this incredibly highfalutin incomprehensible visionary technology in mind, which is not achievable at all, maybe even just in the far, far future. We don't even know what type of um, technological progress we'd have to make to get this in the first place. We're going to talk about it so that we can end up getting like through, you know, um, subversively this other kind of technology, which is much more simple, much more uh, basic in general and for different mm -hmm. purposes than the one that I'm selling to you. Um, I'm going to get my TED talk on the visionary thing. You don't ask any any critical questions about how this is achievable or what this actually is. Just deal with the vague platitudes, and then yeah, and you marvel. I'm going to use that the, the ingenuity of it or something. Yeah, and then I'm going to use that and then subversively get this other thing, which is much more nefarious and no one would actually be okay with um, if I sold it, you know, on the surface. Which is this mm -hmm. whole I'm just going to sort of uh, you know make this sort of biological marker for. Um, individuals' brains and then sell that really base-level information to advertisers. Like, no one would be cool with that. But they're cool with, you know, I could have a, a computer hooked up to my brain which can use my thought language and put it in text, which is not possible. Right. Yeah, because they'll sell you on all the benefits of convenience and of, uh, of like, overcoming miscommunication so that you can really communicate to people and so you can really express yourself and you can really get the desires. Dude, uh, I don't want to know really people's consume. thoughts. What the fuck? <laughs> yeah. Well, but even wants to know I know. That? I know. I know, right? But you <laughs> even can, if it were possible, really, who wants to know that shit? But if you want to share your thoughts, you know, you can really communicate authentically and, and then you can really have access to the real consumption items that that match your real impulse and your des the desires of your heart. Yeah, they, they're going to sell it like that, right? It's going to be really flowery and practical and maybe even enhancing in the way that they frame it. But you're absolutely right. It's going to be um, an ambition that exceeds our grasp in order that they can court billions of investment and secure billions of subsidies and tax breaks and whatever else they can get. And then they're going to end up basically just creating machine learning algorithms that aren't going to be as revolutionary as they as they claim at the outset, but that are really just going to code different ways of extracting data in more complex ways than they're already doing. It isn't going to lead to some sort of human liberation where somehow we're all immediately engaged in reciprocal exchange of information, but rather it's just going to be a sort of imposition of like predictive algorithmic technologies. So it's going to be an imputation of the same, right? It's going and to just be an imputation of the same processes at an intensified rate. 
and, and not even necessarily in more complex ways than they're previously doing, but just getting into areas that currently are not exactly um, modes of capital or not privately uh, considered uh, units in the market. Right. That's right. This is exactly what, um, you know, capitalism is trying to do most of the time. Look at um, the desire to make social security privatized, to get public schools and turn them into private into charters. Um, it's just trying to take publicly or individually owned things that are not part of the market and include them. So yeah. you can then extract surplus value from those things. So yeah. that's really exactly. the idea. It's just there are certain areas that are not being used to make money. Let's make them able to do that. Yeah, this is, I mean, obviously the Marxian term for this is commodification, but this is where I think Deleuze and Guattari actually present a really amazing way to try to understand capitalism, which they refer to as capitalism as being characterized by decoded flows. And they use the word, instead of commodification, they use the word axiomatics, and they take it from set theory. And axioms for them are uh, purely quantifiable potency, maybe? I guess would be a way to say it. It's pure quantifiable potency is what an axiom is. And so if you have a, a system like capitalism, the reason they define it as being axiomatic, um, which is their sort of consonant term for uh, the process of commodification, what it does is that it constantly unscrambles the qualitative, the things that are valuable. So the things that you value that are not currently on the market uh, the axiom, the axiomatic tendency or axiomatization, what it does is it sort of unseats, it decodes those things that have been previously coded as qualitative or valuable, the things that you want, like your intimacy with your partner or your sleep patterns, the things that are somehow prized that aren't yet turned into commodities. And what it does is it scrambles the codes and then unleashes the potency so that they can be recoded into the conditions or the dictates or the demands of the profit motive. And I think that's something that's really interesting because that's exactly what this is. This is just trying to decode um, and then axiomatize, i.e. commodify, exactly like you just said, those areas of life that are not yet on the market, and then turn them into market-producing factors. Yeah, and the simple question we have to ask is, do we think that every single thing is better when it's traded on the market? And <laughs> right. if we do think that that's an incredible level of ideology uh, governing our thought and needs to be justified. And I don't think that can be justified. Um, and if we do, if we're skeptical of that, which I think the vast majority of people are skeptical of that idea. Um, the vast majority of people, I think that there are at least some basic things which everybody should have access to and, or um, have ownership over that should not be available um, to be traded on the market. Then you have to be skeptical of these kinds of things because that's the movement. Uh, I know, man, but here's the thing, like where are the voices at government that are standing up saying, hey, Mark Zuckerberg, no. Hey, Elon Musk, no. You can't just simply use your centralized computer system in the car to measure our body weight so that you can sell off, you know, my personal weight fluctuations to insurance companies or to fucking fitness companies or to whatever it is that they're selling that information to or using it for somehow maximizing your efficiency in your extraction of lithium so you can make better lithium batteries, right? And then that is going to translate into the extraction of natural resources uh, in the developing world. Like, no, you, you can't. But no one is actually dealing at that level in any substantial way. Like, you get a lot of academics... You get activists who are writing pieces, and I think that's fucking important. That's amazing. But how do we translate that activity into actual, like, like how can we get Bernie 
who has recently, I guess, some of his economic advisors, and I'm going hallelujah about this. I mean, I'm already sold. I'm fucking Bernie. Like, I don't even need conversations. Like, I will vote for Bernie. Like, it's just, he could come out tomorrow probably and just be like, hey guys, I'm a Hare Krishna, and take off his clothes and start running around naked. And I'd still be like, cool, man. That's amazing. Like, I'm sold. <laughs> come right? on, that would actually help you vote for him. <laughs> probably. Um, but, but like, uh, someone came out the other day and uh, his, his advisors have been exploring social wealth funds, sovereign wealth funds and community wealth funds. And I'm like, fuck yes. Like, let's start looking at the mechanisms of finance um, to also supplement his uh, his sort of like late Fordist price negotiation union focused uh, uh, kind of uh, approach. Right. But how amazing would it be if he also was like, all right, so now we need to look into this shit, like this move towards data extraction and we need to to have that be a central focus of our political campaign and and i would imagine that if he were elected that this wouldn't be outside the scope of uh, of his concerns but the thing is is i almost wonder if he's a little bit too old uh and a little maybe a little bit too old school to put that at the forefront now and it might actually diffuse his campaign like he's doing pretty well with his kind of more narrow focused prescription but i just we need that at the political level. So I'm just hoping that Bernie gets elected and then maybe like, I don't know, someone down the future or maybe like second term Bernie is able to have some amazing economic advisors that are like, yo, we need to start like really confronting this shit now is so second, that we can make sure. second term Bernie the, the head in a jar inside of some like ambiotic <laughs> yes. fluid? You know? Gosh. So you know my know. answer, right? We what discussed this before. We need to hmm. make the superheroes evil. Right? Like in film? I mean, who, who says no to Tony Stark as constructed as a cinematic figure? Nobody does, right? Because he's purely good and knowledgeable and knows all and is perfect. Even when he makes mistakes, it's only in the and He's got great moral better, fiber. Right? Yeah. yeah. And so we have this vision of, of you know tech giants being these kind of libertarian mm. superheroes like we've talked about before. And the only thing that can really stop them is government overregulation. And uh, we need to make the superheroes evil. Just make them actually evil which would not be difficult because they often are <laughs> we just don't couch them that way in, in the in the movies so make them evil so that we start distrusting these figures and then everything will be solved because politics is downstream from culture did you see venom the tom hardy venom yes i did you know the bad guy that's played by um what's his name the british dude yeah i know you're talking about um he is kind of like a bad elon musk yeah that's kind of cool. They definitely couch him as like you. You understand why he's doing what he's doing. He just uses the poor means to his end, which is the you know, I guess it's a better trope than the purely um, naively good superhero, but still a trope. Yeah, that's I mean, one that's, step in the right direction. Watchmen that, maybe will do it. <laughs> yeah, I know. But then the problem is, is some, with something like Watchmen, it's always viewed as a fringe superhero. Like it's supposed to be the anti-hero superhero film. And so it, it, I don't know if it will ever contest like that mainstream, just constant feed of good superheroes are the ones that we should all strive to be, which is like some weird Ayn Randian bullshit, yeah, right? Messianic like that bullshit. Everyone is becoming John Galt, the man. And then of you mind. have you have the problem of Rorschach and Watchmen. People end up liking him, <laughs> and like they they say they resist the the villainous uh, archetype that he becomes. And they're like, no, actually, we love that guy. It's so yeah. ingrained in us to want the superheroes to be figures we look up to and imitate, imitatio superhero, right? 
Um, mm. Gross. Yeah. Fucking totally insidious gross. and gross and yeah. I don't know, man. That was my shit a minute. All right, so on the main segment today, we're talking a little bit more about the Zizek Peterson debates. Uh, I think that's the episode we did um, with Heidi and David was was great. I thought it was wonderful to get their perspective on the debate and also some of the reactions to the debate, um, especially the more negative ones from the left, like we talked about with that Jacobin article. But I thought it would also be nice for... Uh, you and I to kind of go over the more conceptual parts of the debate, which although is, you know, it was necessarily superficial given that it was a debate meant for popular consumption. I think we all understood that it, it wasn't going to go much beyond that. Um, there were some interesting things that were said and discussed, and I think it was very different than it ended up that I thought it was going to be in the beginning. Um, did you mm. have that same sort of reaction of it being kind of a surprise? I mean, I was surprised, but I also started tweeting out that it was kind of like when you listen to a band that you've listened to for years on vinyl or on CD or MP3, and then on, then you go and you see them live and they play the hits, and you're like, oh, cool, they're not just playing stuff from their new album, they're they're going back to the original stuff. With Zizek, and it felt yeah, like that. Sure. Zizek was doing, he's pulling out his jokes about the toilet, you know, and... Uh, you know, the shit to represent his, how he articulates ideology. And uh, he went into the bit about, is it, uh, is it Niels Bohr or the scientist who has the horseshoe over his door? And, you know, it's like he was rolling out the hits, but Peterson was too, you know, Peterson is going into evolutionary psychology and he's pulling out the same tropes that he's used to argue communism and every opportunity he's ever given so in a way it was kind of retreading those things but there was there was a freshness and a novelty in the forum and in the kind of dialectic engagement and i mean that in sort of more the socratic sense but also maybe we could use it in the hegelian sense but just there was something novel in bringing these two people together even if they were playing the originals it's like having I don't know, two bands, like a battle of the bands. Like even though you've heard their songs before, if you put like Led Zeppelin on one stage and you put, I don't know, what would be the Peterson equivalent? Uh, Journey? I was going to say Nickelback. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's worse. <laughs> on the other stage, because they're Canadian too, you know, Nickelback are Canadian. Um, and you put them on stage doing like a competing dual kind of show there would be a novelty in that, even if you knew all the songs already. And I feel like I knew all the songs going in, but there was a freshness about the whole event, and that for me was the most striking. Yeah, so I agree with you on the, the Zizek point. Uh, obviously, we've both had similar levels of you know like depth reading of Zizek done in our, in our past. So literally everything he said was a reference to something he had written probably in six other books before. Yes. Um, but I hadn't had much exposure to peterson before this okay pretty much all of my exposure to him has been through like lefty think pieces decrying him Mm. um which gave me a sort of view of him as basically being the kind of somewhat intellectual version of like ben shapiro or someone like that Mm. you know this kind of leading alt-right figure 
Um, and I was kind of surprised and I, and I wouldn't say I definitely wasn't impressed, but I was actually kind of felt sympathy mm. for Peterson. He didn't come off to me as this kind of sneering asshole that like a Ben Shapiro is right. Mm. Um, he came across to me as just kind of naively ignorant about a lot of lefty ideas, especially when it comes to Marxism and his analysis of the communist manifesto, even just his choice of the communist manifesto as the thing to criticize was kind <laughs> of like, you don't understand what you're the genre of the text. This is a manifesto. It's not an argument. Um, and so he keeps decrying the fact that there's no arguments being made for the conclusions. It's like, well, yeah, it's a, like a brochure. It's like a long brochure. Right. This is not, this is not, you know, the German ideology here. Like, um, you didn't even touch capital and get to the economic analysis. So, like, yeah, there's, there's criticism to be made of all these things, but he just basically was laying out Wikipedia level criticisms of Marxism after, I guess, reading the manifesto and thinking it was an argument. Um, and so I kind of just like blew all that off. It's basically freshman level, you know, reasoning about um, socialism. Um, but then, and then Zizek did his thing which was fun and interesting and didn't really make a lot of sense or have any cohesive point to it in the beginning. Um, but then the discussion after their two 30-minute uh, speeches, I thought was really interesting. Um, and I think we talked about this too with Heidi is, and talking about the last 30 minutes or so of the debate was probably the most interesting. And I thought it was too. Um, do you have anything from their first speeches you want to talk about or uh, anything that kind of grabbed you? Well, I'm surprised that you thought that Zizek's opening talks were incoherent. One of the things I was so surprised with and talking about with the people that were in the room with me watching was how coherent relative to normal Zizek talks, how coherent it actually was. Like, I thought that there was a point. His point was kind of the frame of seeking happiness is ultimately self, like a, a form of self-sabotage. And he kind of does his sort of psychoanalytic um, unpacking of why that's the case. But I thought it was delivered in a way that if you were uninitiated to Zizek, then you would have garnered a lot. Because I was trying as much as possible to think in like two minds. One, someone who's extremely familiar with Zizek, who's been probably more influenced by Zizek than, than I know. Like there's a sense in which my post-evangelical conversion began uh, with Zizek among some other sources, being somebody who uh, who really kind of nudged me in in that direction. You the know? thorn in your shoe, as you always say. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And the rock in your shoe, that's what you say. Yeah, the, yeah, the stone. Same shit. I like thorn too, but yeah, same <laughs> shit. Um, so, so I was trying to look at it from that perspective, but then I was also trying to say like what – because I've engaged with a lot of people. Because you know me, I'm kind of like I still have an apologist mind and heart, and so I still engage with a lot of people who are not in the same camp as myself. And I was like, what would a 20 year old, or even maybe some of my friends, a 30 year old, 35 year old dude who is not an academic philosopher, but who is coming to this debate? as a Peterson supporter and who has never heard of Zizek, who's never read Zizek until this now, how would they interpret what he's doing? And I kind of got the sense that it would have, 
or could have pierced some of those people's armor. Yeah, I mean, I think especially regarding the stuff about happiness, um, and I think what I meant by him being incoherent, I don't think I didn't even use the word incoherent. Uh, I think the notion was just that the debate was framed as Marxism versus capitalism in terms of happiness, and Judic mm. didn't have anything to say about that other than just to subvert it for something else, um, yeah. which is Zizek's way of doing things, right? To criticize the question, um, right. which is wonderful. It's a philosophical way of doing things. But exactly. you know, using that platform to then go and bring up all of his little stories and jokes um, while entertaining, and oftentimes people grab onto those jokes and think that they're more profound than they actually are rather than just being sort of illustrations of a larger point. Um, but anyway, uh, I thought that yeah, the the subversion of, of, of happiness, taking the psych, psychoanalytic kind of sword to that notion was exactly what he should have done. I just, yeah. I really think it would have been nicer if they had titled the debate differently. Mm. And then it also felt a little bit unfair to Peterson um, in that he clearly was not prepared for the discussion that was had afterwards since mm. Zizek kind of took control of the debate and made it something different. Mm-hmm. Um, which actually I think was wonderful because it ended up being a conversation more than a debate, which is good because debates are terrible and conversations are often good. Um, yeah, yeah. The one thing you will not see and that I haven't seen, I haven't seen at all, but you won't see much of unless somebody's just, they're simply trying to ride on the coattails of sensationalist media production. Um, but is you won't see too many videos that are like Zizek slams Peterson. I mean, you might in the bit when he's like, who are these authors, these postmodern neo-Marxists? Like there might be that or the bit when he's like, you know, about the bit about North Korea. You can't just go to North Korea and tell somebody to clean up the room sort of thing, right? Like you could because those were two kind of big gotcha moments that people have talked about since. Peterson didn't have a single one, which is really interesting. But um, – you won't I don't, see I don't, I don't two. You can gotcha Zizek. <laughs> I, yeah, I don't think so either. He eludes right. that. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. But I think that the whole debate really kind of debate the the conversation, like you say, it really kind of circumvented, for the most part, any sensationalization or over sensationalization of this event, which is which is nice because we live in a fucking world where it doesn't matter if it's a Fox News segment, or if it's a post-fight interview with a couple of UFC fighters or whatever, people are always going to make it be like the most emotionally charged title that they possibly can. But I haven't seen a lot of that with Zizek Peterson, and I think that that's actually like really beneficial for not just simply pushing the the flow, the current of, of things uh, forward in, in the same trajectory, but it kind of is a digression. It kind of disrupts it a little bit. And it, it can shock you to thought. And I think that is is really powerful. Yeah, I think so too. I just wonder a bit, maybe this is purely speculative, but I almost wish somebody had been in this debate who would have been able to make the same substantive points Zizek was making about happiness um, and doing the psychoanalytic critique of happiness as a goal, um, but do it in a much more structured way that, Peterson's fans would be able to actually internalize. Now, maybe doing that means, well, one, there wouldn't be a debate because Peterson wouldn't do that. And then two, maybe that comes off as um, sort of 
hoity-toity or something, um, mm. elitist, and then people just turn their ears off. Mm. But I just wonder if Zizek's going to appeal to an audience who's looking towards Peterson as being kind of an intellectual father figure and saying mm. this person who's like the 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 meth-addled guy who lives outside of the Arby's um, level of like engagement with you. And that's really going to shock you to thought or just be like, dude, this guy's like nuts. I don't even know what he's talking about. Mm. I mean, it's hard for me to say because like every time Yujik brings up these arguments, we've heard them dozens of times before. So we know where he's going, but I wonder if everybody else does. Yeah. I wondered this too. I wondered if it would be good to have a part two, you know, like we need, we need a sequel. And if, if Zizek scrambled the codes and deterritorialized, we need a productive reterritorialization. Yeah, because exactly. as much as what I just said about how difficult it will be to sensationalize and just simply mediatize this event, um, at least in the the typical way, it's still it's still going to be recoded by the flows of capital. Like I mentioned earlier in the in the shitty minute about Deleuze and Guattari, it will still be axiomatized. Because everything is potentially convertible. That's the whole point of the isomorphic tendency of capital. So, you know, I mean, something like millions of people have now seen this, which means that there are views and advertising revenues. And there are also charges to stream it and watch it live. And um, there were tickets sold at the event, and it was like some huge arena. So there's obviously capital that is being accumulated somehow through various different um mechanisms of extraction but beyond that this you know will turn into some sort of memeable um screenable like rescreenable event so it can be recoded in various different ways so how could we at the level of like knowledge production at the level of um of a genuine political social and political emancipatory project recode this in a way that we don't just throw people up into the clouds in the sort of uh the famous critique is it aeschylus or sophocles that says that uh, socrates's head's in the clouds um it's not just that it's then also bringing them back down maybe yeah oh was it aristophanes yeah i might have there's one of those fucking ancient tragedians um or he was a comedian comedian yeah comedian yeah um one of the ancient writers um but rather than just throwing people up into the clouds we you got to give them a parachute to bring them back down because if you simply scramble the codes um it's really easy for a re-territorialized process to swoop in kind of like the devil and be like oh so you need something well here try this and it's really easy once you scramble the codes to just lose somebody and and that's the fear is so i did wonder if like a part two or a sequel and and we were actually talking about this in in the screening room and then i saw some discussion online about you know having somebody that was more adept at the language of political economy that's what all the marxists wanted right they wanted somebody who could really challenge peterson's assertions about capitalism producing happiness around the world and using the kind of like he did the Steven Pinker kind of idea about you know what is it the angels of our better what is it angels, angels of our better nature. nature yeah yeah that kind of shit you know and that capitalism is um, that wouldn't work though I mean at the yeah, that's that, 
Yeah, so I was thinking like what? Like do you want to debate with Richard Wolff? Because he also challenged Peterson a few months back, right? And, you know, he's a great Marxist economist who is able to communicate to the average person um, very effectively. But one, it's really dry. And two, like you just said, I think it might be viewed as kind of like over-intellectual propaganda almost. So Yeah, and, and you know what? And Peterson's not talking at the sort of factual debate level. That's not what he's interested in. He's mm. making moral arguments for capitalism, mm. right? That's the genre um, of argument that he's using. And Zizek sort of straddles that, right? In the sense mm-hmm. that he's doing a sort of uh, critique of the moral argument, or at least a critique of moral arguments, or maybe a critique of like normative judgments in general, um, which is good, right? It's, it's pretty close to what Peterson's doing. Um, I do kind of wish that there was a better positive moral argument mm. presented as an alternative to Peterson. Because, you know, the appeal of Peterson, it seems to me, obviously I have not read his books. I've got a very limited um, introduction to him, so this is not supposed to be comprehensive or exhaustive. But from watching the debate, it seems to me like Peterson's appeal is that he's actually addressing an issue which matters to people. He is saying that the current intellectual and cultural climate doesn't satisfy certain intellectual needs for a morally consistent and responsible view of the world. And Mm. you know what? Hot take here. Mm. I agree with that. Now, Mm. I think that the way he locates that critique and then the way he responds to it is could not be more wrong. Um, But I think he's appealing to a thing which matters to a lot of people. And I think it's not a surprise that it's a lot of white men that get into that because there's a certain sense in which the shock of the current cultural climate leads um, young white men to need some adult father figure to sort of reaffirm their moral status, right? When they Mm. kind of feel like they're being attacked from every which way, which is not true. It's a paranoia complex, right? But they still do feel that way, a lot of people. And so mm. I, I kind of I have a better grasp I think now of of, the, of why Peterson appeals to a lot of people, and have a little bit of sympathy for him. He may still be a charlatan and a grifter, I don't know, probably, but it seems to me like there's something more substantive going on with him than there is with some of these other kind of alt right ideologues, which are just purely grift and don't have any substantive. Um, you know, intellectual like worldview at the bottom of it. It's basically just uh, cruelty is the point kind of a thing. Mm. And there's, I'm sure there's some of that going on with Peterson, but it seems to me like there's a little bit more happening there um, than in some of these other figures. And I do wish there was a, a more of a positive moral vision, which I think can be produced, right? I think mm-hmm. you can actually make an argument for why socialism makes us more free. And will eventually make us more happy, or at least has the potential for doing so. Um, and those are arguments which I think are, could absolutely be sort of presented as an alternative to Peterson's. So in the introduction to his Maps of Meaning, he kind of talks about his own personal experience. He gives a little biographical sketch. And it's basically that when he was a young boy, he's Canadian, when he was a young boy and then into a young man, he was searching for something to give him meaning. And he talks about how he kind of like tried 
leftism, right? He tried socialism. He Wait, tried. really quick, really quick. When you when yeah. you picture Jordan Peterson as a young boy, is he wearing a suit and had that st- st- like stupid haircut still? It's just a smaller I, version of that, right? Oh my god, he's that dude in the fucking like in high school that's part of like young <laughs> business leaders of America that with the, rocks with up the with the fucking briefcase. <laughs> <laughs> And the stubble. Oh, yeah, for sure. Okay, sorry. Oh, my God. The, the, the horrible upper lip mustache when he's 17 years old because he's trying to be an adult. Yes. But he, he, he details his, like, journey. And he says that he didn't find what he was looking for. You know, the fucking Bono screaming out, I still, you know, whatever it is. <laughs> and then he goes on to kind of develop his Jungian solution to this like intuitive sense that the world systems can't offer him the thing that he needs. And that's why I think a lot of Christians gravitate to him because it's that longing for something. Mm -hmm. It's that God-shaped hole in his heart. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And what he ends up relying on is the universality of archetypes, evolutionary psychology. Those things fill the gap for him. Right, but and then and then he Which goes he on to readily kind of, admits is a fiction, right? Right. Or it's almost like is. it's a fabulation that you that you require in order to mask the discrepancies between the vast unconscious desires and our conscious ability to reconcile with those. And he kind of is like, and then that's the space of the human condition, which is interesting because he's not some weird, like, libertarian, we have radical individual freedom and free will to create ourselves, but it's much more of a nuanced kind of Heideggerian, almost post-existential, post-Nietzsche idea of staring into the void and how that creates a fear. But don't, don't worry because you are therefore the master of your destiny. There is an existentialism here. That's why he talks about Dostoevsky a lot. That's why he talks about Nietzsche. That's why he talks about Heidegger. Um, there is this idea that you are constantly in this battle uh, to slay the dragon of chaos, which he actually uses that. So he relies on like mythological history. Uh, he appeals a little bit to Campbell, but mostly to Jung. And it's this idea that there's like the great dragon myth that sort of underlies his understanding of the human condition. And particularly young men, they're constantly, they got to go out and slay the dragon. You know, and I think that's how he kind of views himself in so many ways as he's on a hero's journey. It's the monomyth and perpetually in your life, you need to slay the dragon. And I think that really does appeal to people. One, because we're fed the monomyth all the time in all of the stories that we read. Um, But two, like you just said, there is a sense of disruption that characterizes let's say, contemporary human experience. Maybe all human experience. I'm tempted to think it is. I just think it expresses itself in different guises. But let's say, at the very least, contemporary human experience under the conditions of Western capitalism that have obviously been globalized and integrated, there is a sense of disruption. But his solution is therefore, you know, stand up straight, clean up your room, uh, be the master of your own destiny, slay the dragon, rather than truly try to scrape beneath the surface and analyze what might be these causal factors lying underneath the surface. Um, and so I think I think this is where, I, we've talked about this previously, I think we talked about it with uh, when, when Amy Therese was on the podcast 
you know, last year about the difference between the sort of hysteric discourse and the obsessive. And mm. Zizek writes about this in reference to Peterson, where he basically says, no, no, Peterson isn't a fascist. But there is a sense that there is a commonality about the fascistic logic that needs to, like, preclude the existence of that otherness, of that disruption, of contradiction, of difference. It needs to foreclose that from having impact on the contemporary social order by covering over it, by mastering it, right? And that's that idea of of covering over that that I think Peterson is just like habitually inclined towards that characterizes the neurotic obsessive, right? You could do that through all kinds of different mechanisms. In capitalism, we use algorithmic pricing models to cover over the uh, implied volatility, which is the variance of assets in a market, right? So we use these predictive technologies so that we can like ignore or try to mitigate the potential looming disaster of uncertainty that comes from disequilibria. Um, that's one way we could do it. We do it through uh, religion. You go to church on a Sunday so that you can reconcile the sort of anxieties of your soul, this feeling that you're not worthy, this feeling that you're not connected, this place of loneliness, how to reconcile with the God-shaped hole in your heart or whatever. The problem is, is that people think that that pre-existent condition of the God-shaped hole or the disequilibria is then somehow an ontological fact rather than recognizing that it itself is being produced, maybe even essentially that capitalism is precisely something that produces that anxiety, that it precisely operates by producing disruption and then offering the satisfaction through the commodity that says this will satisfy the longings that are just in your heart. And so it naturalizes and it essentializes anxiety and then says, but we have the cure. Rather than what would be a much more dialectical engagement that says, well, what is the production of that disruption in the first place? What is the, how can we account for the creation of scarcity through the restriction of resources or through the manufacture of desire through the advertising industry? And those are things that are much more robust account of the contemporary uh, condition would take into account, which Zizek is capable of um, opening us up to and exploding the problem, but he then isn't able to, like you say, pick up the pieces and then say, okay, so now what can we do with this um, moving forward? How can we use the speculative powers of the imagination to fabulate new futures? Which, small plug, which is what my book attempts to try to do, right? Um, that's coming out next month for people. Um, but that kind of stuff, and I know that this is what your research interests moving forward are going to be eminently concerned with, is that that normative, that project of normative construction, productive normative construction moving forward. Yeah, and it's not just capitalism that constructs the God-shaped hole and the anxiety and the different sort of sources of negativity, which then we have to overcome to you know, produce who we are or whatever. I think a, a really central point in an argument for socialism is to say, look, the world, nature, and life itself produces that stuff already. It produces all of the struggle and all of the antagonism you need to become a productive person, right? The kind of stuff that, that the classic conservative argument says you need to suffer and to struggle in order to become like the best version of yourself or whatever, right? This individual struggle, um, which capitalism then sort of um, solidifies into society itself. 
I, I think a, an important argument for, for socialism is to say, look, the world already produces that. You get cancer. You, your body breaks down as you get older. Um, your mm. mind starts to leave you. Your mind sucks anyway at like thinking and producing arguments and, and doing all the things that it needs to do. Um, we don't need extra things on top of that, right? Extra mm. like shit <laughs> uh, toppings on our shit Sunday, right? You don't need to have that. There's plenty of that already to go around. If we can actually have a, a sort of social makeup that helps us better deal with that already existing kind of natural antagonism in life, then it actually enables you to do better what conservatism wants you to do, to become the best moral responsible person that you can be, right? There has to be, and this is the reason I felt some sympathy for Peterson, and I think that his audience is grabbing onto something that's really important, is that it's one step away from this kind of enlightening realization, mm. that this individual struggle that people hear from Peterson and then they grab onto because they feel like, you know, I've dealt with that too. And everybody has. Everybody has their struggle that they go through. Um, it's not individual, right? The struggle is, is real. That's true. It's just not an individual struggle, right? It's sort of constituted from all sides by nature, by society, by oneself, by everything. And this weird interconnected web of creating um, the antagonisms of life, right? And so eventually there's some realization that, yeah, you know, to put it in Zizek's kind of pithy phrase, can you really tell someone in North Korea to make their bed, get their mm -hmm. house in order? Can you really tell somebody um, who has cancer and doesn't have health insurance, like just figure it out and be your more responsible adult self? Um, no, you can't. Like that's not an answer, right? Society sometimes puts you into a double bind where you're screwed from every which way. You can't make a responsible moral choice. You're disallowed from making it, right? If you're mm -hmm. a trans person and society tells you that, this is one of my favorite examples because I think it's really illustrative, and society tells you that on one sense, um, you say maybe present yourself as a woman, but you're biologically male or whatever, right? Um, you're at one, self, one sense a liar because you're really male even though you present as female. And the other side, you're actually just like playing, right? You're just make-believing, right? Mm. And so no matter what you say about yourself, there's some accusation to be leveled against you. You can't hmm. act responsibly. There's no way for you to do it. And I think that kind of analysis allows us to see that this is what injustice is, right? When an individual or group is put into situations where they're not allowed to be a responsible self. And the real problem with the Peterson analysis in sort of shelving that and not even addressing that issue, that possibility, is that it means certain groups who are put in those double binds and aren't allowed to make responsible choices are then blamed for making the irresponsible choice, which they had no choice in making. And that blame is where it, the conservative argument gets ugly, right? It doesn't sound ugly when you're talking about being responsible and making your bed and cleaning your room and taking responsibility for yourself, not blaming other people. That all sounds good. That's all generally pretty sound advice for how to be an adult, right? <laughs> but it then comes into the, then we get to blame people who don't do those things. And certain mm. people have to do those things because they're mm. disallowed from making responsible choices. Then we get to blame them and consider ourselves superior to them. Okay, this is now ugly, right? Mm. And the, the former leads to the latter directly. So yes. the, the ugliness comes after, right? But you can see the seeds of it already being produced there. And I think that's what we really need to kind of stave off or at least connect 
those two movements so that it's clear where the kind of innocuous um, analysis of you know being a responsible adult leads to this ugliness at the social level. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. You say you don't want to just you know put shit on top of a shit sandwich. I think the the shit on top of a shit sandwich is like the discursive response, right? The our discursive traditions and or the discursive social formations that oftentimes induce enhance maybe even at an exponential magnitude, that anxiety. So you say it's not just capitalism. I can think of the church, where the church, let's say particularly, um, I know people talk about Catholic guilt, but I I mean, maybe it's just because I've experienced it firsthand and I've only read about Catholics and I've talked with them, but I think that the Protestant Calvinist guilt has to be worse because it is purely you must mortify your own self. I mean, there's a fucking book, a famous fucking book by John Owen called The Mortification of Sin that if you are a Calvinist or a Reformed Christian, that it is like mandatory to read, right? So that you can hate yourself even further. <laughs> and I talk about this all the time with people who are a part of the Reformed tradition where they constantly tell me like, I need Sundays, man, because it's law and grace. I need to be held up to the impossible standard so that I can see what a wretch I am and then I need to be reminded of how great God is. So what is that doing? That's a self-reproducing system where you self-flagellate, where you induce the own anxieties, and then supposedly you hold out the cure in front of you. But it's the pharmacon that Derrida talks about, which is the cure that is also the cause of the problem, right? And you see this, I think, with a lot of different state formations, that also promise that they're going to alleviate the suffering. Um, but I think there's something really interesting, too, that even in Peterson's own here is a cure, because he's a therapist ultimately, so I think he sees himself as being like the therapeutic figure for a mass of white Western men that feel as though they've been left behind. And he's feeding into the anxiety, maybe that first shit, by actually producing another layer of shit by his own discursive formulation, which is that um, I, I think I maybe have talked with you about it. I've talked about it in a couple different places where it's kind of like you then will, you can at least intensify your own guilt by looking at the rest of your life and thinking, wow, I've wasted it. I've never been the dragon slayer. I've never actually done the thing. All this other stuff I've done is a waste, you know, but now I have found the truth. And even though there's a sense in which it's really beneficial and helpful and important to reach those higher levels of kind of like intellectual growth, personal growth, emotional growth, where you can say, you know what, man, I was a fuck up when I was younger and now I've found something great. The problem is, is that it doesn't necessarily always lead to that if you're just simply covering over the anxieties, because if you just induce more of an anxiety by saying here is the cure, but that cure itself is just perpetually um, pulling the goalposts or expanding the goalposts, kind of like uh, magnetism, where it's like the closer the two things get, the further they kind of like bounce off of each other. If that's the thing that's kind of being induced into somebody, it will only intensify anxiety. It won't lead to the kind of overcoming that he's kind of holding over as the promise, which is, I think, very interesting because it kind of fits into a very similar type of logical problematic as that Protestant, that Protestant guilt, that Reformed guilt. And simultaneously, that also capitalism operates under. And it's the logic of one, salvation, and two, eschatology. 
It's this idea that you can be saved, that that you can be converted, and all of your activities can be converted if they simply are subject to that final goal, to that telos. But that final goal is a static, totalized image that is ultimately going to actually preclude you and foreclose off potential sites of creation. And I would say what would be something that can allow us to understand, socially speaking, those potency of sites of creation is a radical openness and attunement to the other. And I don't just mean the other in terms of like the trans person. Yes, absolutely. But also to the otherness of the other, the recognition that there is stuff that exceeds our ideological frameworks and our structural systems and our social formations. And to allow ourselves to attune ourselves to the radical disruptive processes of those things that are outside of us. We could also include the environment in this. We could also include different social uh, expressions in this, different social activities, different sexual practices in this, in ways that will allow us not to um, a priori foreclose the potential creative production of those things, but that rather will attune us to those things to allow them to scramble our presuppositions. But if you foreclosed that possibility by just simply asserting your presuppositions at the outset, then you just reproduce a dogmatism that might itself actually produce anxiety. And that's the fear that I have with Peterson's cure, is that it ultimately actually induces greater and greater anxiety precisely because it's actually a very rigid and dogmatic system. Yeah, I think that's that's exactly right. And I like that analogy with Reformed theology. Um, I was thinking, you know, Kierkegaard's got the three stages of subjectivity, right? The aesthetic, the ethical, and the religious. Mm-hmm. And it seems like Peterson's really trying to help young men get from the aesthetic to the ethical, right? Mm-hmm. Get from the, I live purely for pleasure in this kind of like higher animal sort of way. Um, not thinking about how I affect others, whether or not I'm living a good life, whether or not I'm responsible to society in some way, and then move them into the ethical sphere where you have concern for what you're doing. You're reflective on what you do. You have reasons for why you do what you do, which is not in itself in the abstract a bad thing, right? But then I think in Kierkegaard would make the same uh, judgment, right? That that itself, while being an important sort of transcending of that aesthetic stage has its own contradictions especially you know Kierkegaard has in mind the more like philosophical notions of like a um, Kantian and Hegelian philosophy but Peterson formally making sort of a similar move here um, would have to recognize that the setup that he's that he's producing as the cure is not actually going to cure but as you're saying itself produces the very anxiety that it's trying to cure Mm. in a kind of perverse way. Um, Mm. He's not really noticing that the system itself, as we're set up, as we're we're subjectified in, is producing the very anxiety you're trying to cure from within the system. It's because he doesn't criticize Western culture, and that's the particular that he uses to inflate as the universal cure, right? Is that it all is refracted through that. It's all refracted through capitalism and through uh, sort of Western liberal rights. And the problem is, is changing your, I mean, cleaning your room isn't bad and, and doing your fucking laundry and making your bed every morning. Those are good things. I mean, but I learned those things from my grandpa, right? And, and I know a lot of people didn't have that. And so that's great. You need that. You and your sort of like OCD, your probably room is always fucking clean. And I imagine there's labels on your drawers and shit like that. Oh um, man, I don't do fucking <laughs> labels in my drawers. Who do you think I am? <laughs> uh, Why do you need you labels pro- when you know where everything is? Yeah, you already know. Why would you need it? <laughs> 
<laughs> exactly. Right? So that's that's good. Some people need that kind of structure, right? But the problem is, is when that structure is preconditioned by other presuppositions, those first principles, those priors, what that does is that, again, that covers over potential difference. So then the trans voice can't actually be heard from the perspective of the trans voice. It can only ever be incorporated. It's that embrace that smothers. It can only ever be interpreted through the framework of capitalism. So it's like, sure, yeah, you can be trans, but, you know, you just got to make sure that you're abiding by our pre-existent rules and by the rights that we've had. And, yeah, we can just expand some of these formal axiomatic rights or these commoditized uh, processes into whatever your need is, but you have to suspend whatever it is that is particular about the otherness of you. Like, we can't allow otherness. That's that isomorphic tendency again. Capitalism can't allow for radical otherness, right? Same with the, uh, the colonized voice. Like, sure, yeah, we'll give you freedom insofar as you buy our structural adjustment program and you uh, don't spend money internally on education and things like that, but you buy our products that we'll sell to you at exorbitant interest rates so that we are creating some sort of, uh, you know, net, uh, reverse flow of profits from the developing to the developed nations, right? So again, it's, it's there's always a, a but. There's always the small print, let's say. And the problem is that Peterson doesn't contest the, the making of the contract, to use that metaphor. He doesn't contest how it was written in the first place. And the question is, is that that fine print is where the real work is done. It's the butt. It's the it's the stranglehold. It's the smothering. It's the the tendency towards incorporation that he doesn't actually contest because he just simply presumes some notion of liberal progress, some notion that like quote unquote civilized Western societies have reached the pinnacle of rights distributions and things like that. And so he relies on that to. Uh, be the determining factor for how he kind of proceeds with his prescriptions ultimately moving forward. And that's the that's the thing that then just reproduces the very conditions of anxiety. It's that it's that tendency. It's the master signifier. It's the the sort of uh, transcendent, that plane of transcendence that he and his followers are unaware of, but that they get that they buy into and they become sort of complicit in, in reproducing that insofar as they're perpetually kind of um, buying into this this larger framework. Yeah, if, if Peterson won't question those priors, it seems like the ultimate evidence um, that that's happening is the fact that look at Peterson's audience. It's, it comes from the most privileged groups in the society in which he's addressing, right? Mm. Um, because they're the people who are also not going to question those priors. Um, his shtick isn't going to appeal to somebody who, in some sense, even if sort of you know latently or imminently, is unable to accept that this is sort of formally or structurally the best possible society that we could have. Mm. Mm. I got a quick question for you. Uh, maybe we can mm. kind of end on this. What did you think about the fact that there was so much agreement between mm. Zizek and Peterson? on the anti-political correctness uh, sort of thing that they're doing. They had a common enemy throughout a lot of the debate, right? <laughs> yeah. I know there was a lot of 
skepticism before the debate that that's what it would turn into, that it would just devolve into these two guys who have made a history, especially recently, of criticizing PC culture, and that that would sort of dilute any differences between a left project and a conservative project. And I don't know, from my perspective, maybe it's because I... I'm cutting through a lot of the agreement to look at the actual radical divergences with how they criticize sort of liberal progressive PC culture. And so for me, it was actually very productive because what I thought was really interesting, which I think was a really, to use a sports metaphor, a really big like uh, point scoring moment for Zizek was when he says... And I almost got a little teary-eyed at the end, actually, because it felt like a triumphal moment, because I've never heard Zizek preach. But he kind of had one moment where he preached, and it was when they were summing up, and he says something along the lines of, you know, if I could appeal to leftists, um, or if I could appeal to people, I think it was, not just a leftist, if I could appeal to people and kind of sell them on the idea, it was that the two alternatives aren't either kind of PC liberalism or fascism. Or the alt-right, like what he said. What is it? He said the alt-right. Or the alt-right, right. And I thought that that was actually a really powerful moment because I think a lot of people, I have many friends online who they think that those are the alternatives, that there's the SJWs, the crazy regressive left, and then like conservatism, alt-right, uh, fascism, and they're trying to claim, like the Dave Rubens, the IDW crowd, and the people that follow them, that they're operating in this different space. And Zizek is kind of saying, no, you guys are still a part of that thing. And guess what? This thing, this target that you guys are supposedly distancing yourself from, you guys are still all part of this weird sort of liberal tradition. And guess what? There's something else. There's a third way, right? There's a third option. I, third way has such loaded connotations. Yeah, not a, it, not a third way, right? Because then it's it's a subversion of the two ways. Exactly. And I thought that... that it's I, a different really, question, sort of. A complete... That's it. It's a different question. It's... No, no, it's guys, you guys are fighting... You guys are playing baseball, but we're not talking about baseball. We're playing hockey. Like, stop fucking fighting over the rules of baseball. Baseball sucks. Sorry, Troy. Um, but like, stop playing that game. And stop thinking that that's the only game in town. And then stop trying to think that everything has to be played within the rules of that game. There's a completely other game to be played. There's a completely other way of viewing the world. And this is something that I constantly am trying to do in my own explorations or endeavors online. Is and and I and I draw some ire from from some people who are you know friends of mine or that I'm in, in circles with because I'm always asking these questions, even if I don't always, even if I. Even if I don't necessarily always like fully invest or believe in the questions that I'm asking, it's because I'm exploring and trying to say, but are there certain presuppositions that aren't being that aren't being incorporated into the framing of the problematic uh, that that typifies popular political and social discourse? And I never want to just simply rest within those rules of the game. And I kind of thought that was really profound. You know, I mean, that's like I said, it's the most preachy that I've ever heard Zizek be. And I could imagine that somebody or a few somebodies might be like, 
I wonder what that means, you know? And that they would go down a Zizek rabbit hole. And as much as some people on the left might not like that, I once heard a pastor say something, and I'm going to steal this and modify it for my own purposes, but he was talking with a room full of pastors, and he said, you know, if you see a kid around your church that's reading Plato, don't scoff at that, you know? That the sources of disruption that lead towards enlightenment um, are varied. And I thought that maybe maybe you can look at Zizek in a similar way. I heard John Roth, who's an Australian philosopher, basically say that Zizek is the trickster of our times. And, um, and sometimes that a trickster is really valuable. And, and I kind of walked away from the debate thinking that his tricksterism might just have been a really potent antidote to the debate that typifies public discourse surrounding alt-right, conservatism, neoliberalism, and then also like SJWism, regressive lefts on the supposed other side. But that what Zizek would say is, no, you guys are all still part of this liberal tradition. Let's fucking destroy that entirely and think about things in a completely different frame. Here's the thing, though, dude. I think your pastor was wrong. Or that pastor was wrong. Because I read Plato and then fast forward five years and look what happened to my faith. I know. I know. <laughs> I know. It's amazing. You know who that pastor was? Who? Take a guess. Who would, who would, I mean, it's clearly not, not MacArthur. So which pastor that was influential in reformed Christian circles at that time would valorize philosophy? But it was your pastor? No, no, not my pastor, but a famous American pastor, like reformed pastor. Um, is it a reformed Baptist or like a truly, truly reformed? Yeah. Reformed Baptist. Was it Piper? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> at like, a, at like a shepherd's conference or something like that. Cause you know, for him, the way that he found his path to Christianity well, was through believer. Blaise. Well, yeah. it was Blaise Pascal, C.S. Lewis, and then Jonathan Edwards. Yeah, he's a true believer, man. Because if you if you really truly believe in the way he does, then you're going to think, yeah, we could use anything, even Plato, even <laughs> philosophy, to help reinforce. They're they're, they're just wrong. That's just the proof that they're wrong. Because <laughs> that I was know. actually the avenue towards sedition. <laughs> it was. I know, but that's what I that's what I mean. I, that's why I want to modify it and transform it. That avenue yeah. towards sedition is brilliant. But that's it, right? Like. Maybe Zizek is an avenue towards sedition to demystify the stranglehold of liberal progressivism and also to demystify the stranglehold of alt-right or conservative or maybe even like incipient fascist ideas, right? And I think that there's something really valuable about being – I love that. What did you call it? The, uh, the path towards sedition? Avenue towards sedition, yeah. That is – that's a fucking band name. You just oh. went down the alleyway, yeah. Or an album um, name, The Avenue Towards <laughs> Sedition. That is fucking amazing. I love it. So yeah, I had the exact same reaction to what you just said. I could tell you were going there when you started. Um, the idea that he was saying, and being very clear in a unique way for Zizek, that there's more than just liberal PC culture and the alt-right. You don't have yeah. to be one or the other. I thought that was so great as a rhetorical move. Because mm. even though Zizek's analysis of PC culture is really poor, and his stuff about LGBTQ ideology, quote unquote, is just extremely superficial and clearly does not deal with the incredibly multifaceted and thoughtful analysis coming from LGBTQ thinkers. Um, because he, he has his own tendency towards foreclosure, right? He has his own tendency that he precludes the otherness of the other to, uh, other to truly speak forth, right? 
Yes, but also I think Zizek just all the criticisms he makes are things that LGBTQ people often think about and write about. And that he just has this very character caricatured version of it in his mind, which right. is, you know, admittedly his brand, right? He's classic analysis of film is that the true Hegelian doesn't watch the film and analyzes it first. <laughs> um, so it's very unbranded for him. So even though I, I think that all of his, a lot of his analysis of PC culture is, is bad and poor and superficial um, and really just trying to kind of stoke a fire where he doesn't need to, I think rhetorically in the kind of broad strokes here, I think he did a thing that most other people probably couldn't do, couldn't have the cachet to do, certainly. Mm. And that is to say, honestly, there are certain things that the current cultural discourse, which is dominated by these two spheres, right? The alt-right and sort of the liberal centrist PC stuff. Um, as much as there really aren't just those two, people tend to think of it that way, certainly mm. in America. Um, yeah, the culture war have to is be framed that way. that way. Yeah, that's the culture war analysis. It doesn't have to be that way, and it certainly isn't that way. Mm. And everyone should realize that things are more complex than that. And rhetorically, I thought that was great because if anything is going to grab individuals who are prone towards Peterson stuff and towards the more you know um, more nefarious alt right stuff, if anything is going to grab them, it's going to be somebody saying, "Aren't you dissatisfied by the level of this discourse?" Mm. That clearly it's not grasping onto the complexity of the world around us. Um, and anybody who's been on Twitter realizes that the ultimate feeling of Twitter as a discursive tool is that the level of nuance is just not there. That's necessary um, to actually be thoughtful and to engage with people and to actually change your beliefs and all that kind of stuff. And that anyone mm. who's ever had a deep conversation with somebody else knows what that is knows what that looks like when iron sharpens iron, when people affect each other and change their thoughts. And Twitter doesn't do that. Facebook doesn't mm. do that, right? Mm. And so I think viscerally that statement by Zizek would grab people in a way that any sort of really in, sort of engaged factual analysis might just sort of wash over them. Mm. But that, that feeling, I think, would be much more effective. So I was really glad that in the end, even though I, I disagree vehemently with a lot of Zizek's uh, characters of um, quote-unquote PC culture, um, that statement, I think, was, was really good, and especially a good way to end um, mm. the debate. Yeah, because what he's ultimately saying is, is that liberalism isn't the only way. Yeah. And there, there's, there, are, there are priors here, as you've been saying, that are going unquestioned, and that's the real problem. Exactly. Yeah, really, really powerful stuff. Um, I would recommend people to to listen to the debate. Let me ask you this, and I know this is putting you on the spot, and you'd probably need a minute to think, but off the top of your head, if you were going to have a sequel or a part two, or if you were going to have somebody to to bring people down from the clouds, as we mentioned earlier, is there a figure that is currently existing. And I don't mean like somebody like Bernie who is issuing his like economic bill of rights, which holla fucking Louia. Um, but <laughs> I don't mean something like that. But do you think that there's somebody that has the intellectual capacity, the personal vitality um, to be able to engage at that level with somebody like a Peterson to, to appeal to people who are these disaffected you know, Western liberal types. Is there somebody that you think? Like, I love somebody like a Cornell West because I think he kind of has that a little bit. But 
sometimes he's, I don't know, sometimes it just feels like he's almost too left for people to buy into, but not necessarily, because he goes on like fucking Fox News and shit like that, and I think I've heard him on like Tucker Carlson, and he's great, but for some reason, he doesn't quite, like I can't imagine him doing a debate, actually I can't imagine him doing a debate, yeah, what about like someone like that, like a Cornell West, or are there other people? a long time since i heard cornell west speak but it seems to me like although i know he's an academic most of his speeches are much more on the um rhetorical level than on the in the clouds level than on the level we're talking about mm. wanting to do in the sequel here maybe i'm wrong about that you know the, the first person that came to mind for me is cory robin it feels like most people on the left who are intellectual figures either exists mostly on the political terrain, political economic terrain, or on the kind of cultural terrain. And rarely do you have people who I think really grasp the connection between the two. Mm. And that really seems to me to be the biggest weakness that the left has, because the right has realized, or at least has a theory about politics and culture, right? The alt-right theory is that, as I said earlier, politics is downstream from culture. Change culture, politics follows, right? Um, Or address the level of culture, that's the rhetorical uh sort of arena you have to engage in and then the politics follows and i think that's wrong but they at least have a theory right leftists don't seem to think about that very much or at least have a good grasp on that connection and Corey robin's kind of the figure that i I would go to in my mind being the person who has a grasp on that really good Mm. one in a way that you can see bernie kind of following the the message he's been or that robin's been kind of preaching for a while which is that the left needs to make rhetorical arguments mm. about things like freedom and, and not cede that ground to mm. the right and then just use like bureaucratic technological language to talk about how actually you no know, the leftist ideas we have are going to be better because of X, Y, and Z, right? Um, it seems to me like that's also the terrain I'm obviously very concerned with. So maybe it's just my own kind of uh, uh, myopic view of the whole thing. But I think I would think Corey Robin would be a good person to have, not at the rhetorical level that Peterson and and uh, Zizek were were working at, but at the more um, argumentative, factual level that we're talking about, without just being purely technological language. Mm. What do you That's think? Really interesting. Have you have you heard him talk? Like, does he have good rhetorical I've heard him on skills? Podcasts. And- yeah, good. I've heard him on podcasts, but that, those are always kind of like interview based. I don't know how yeah. he would be if he was giving a purely um, to give the microphone and told to go. Mm. But I mean, he's a professor, then, so he's got to be able to do that. <laughs> right. He has some sort of oratory skills. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know off the top of my head. And I also wonder if there isn't a tendency to kind of fetishize the intellectual here as well. And so I'm kind of. I'm kind of curious if there's a way, if there's like a multi-pronged strategy where you Are have we doing a part the superhero two. thing here for leftists. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but then maybe when you no, I, I yeah, I don't know. I'm not going to keep going down that that uh, metaphorical rabbit hole. But but maybe you have like someone like a Corey Robin that does a, the part two or the sequel. But then is there a there needs to be like almost a concerted effort where those debates or that approach to the debate isn't simply ivory tower right 
that it needs to take place in working groups and in community centers and on the street and in the bar. And I don't know, maybe that's just, but then again, maybe that's just me sort of using a sort of like filtering down from an elitist kind of point of view. But, you know, I, I have that academic tendency towards me and I do believe in the power of education. and I do believe in like the, the converting power, so to speak, of encountering the other. And in this sense, I mean, the other being regimes of knowledge that are foreign to you. Um, encountering the unknown unknowns. <laughs> uh, so I don't know. I, I feel like it would be really great to have those, like a part two, part three, part four, part five, perpetually. I'd love to see that kind of thing happen. Um, but at the same time, I wonder if there also isn't some sort of, um, I guess, a more bottom-up approach. And And I guess that does take place at the level of activism. But the problem is the level of activism is oftentimes purely confrontational or disruptive, and isn't always dialectical. It isn't often dialectical. Yeah, I agree with you, though, that I think more important than having sequels in public debate is to take these ideas into your private conversations. You know? Um, yeah. People are not going to speak at the purely academic level of all time. That's obviously too much to ask of people, given that you know people got other shit to do. But... Um, I do think people can talk about the kind of society they want to live in. Like that's not too much to ask. And I think people actually care about that. Mm -hmm. Just sometimes they're afraid to talk about it because they're worried that they're going to get, they're going to lose friendships or alienate people or whatever. Right. And I don't think when you converse in good faith, I don't think people tend to do that. Mm -hmm. At the very least, if people are going to alienate you for having good faith conversations about big issues, then those aren't people you should be friends with anyway. Right. Those are trash people. Mm -hmm. Um, so many of the public figures in this discussion are acting in bad faith, but it's very easily to just assume everybody who shares those views is also in bad faith. Mm. Right. And I, I'm guilty of this too. Sometimes uh, thinking that anybody who holds, you know, positions on the right is going to, is basically just arguing in bad faith. So we can just dismiss it and you know, lambaste it or whatever. Right. And you do need to do that with people who are clearly acting in bad faith, like a bench Shapiro type. Um, but then regular people aren't. And you can actually have good conversations with them. And yeah, you're not going to convince them on one night in Thanksgiving to like be a lefty or whatever, right? Or to endorse socialism. But if you actually treat them like a human being and consider their ideas and try to talk in a way that's you know winsome and intelligent and thoughtful, then over the long term, you're going to affect them. And they're going to affect you and hopefully in good ways on both sides. And mm. you know that's the kind of thing that you know, our time in college, our friendship was sort of forged in doing that. And that iron sharpening iron, um, long nights with Sailor Jerry's in my apartment and whatnot, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, maybe it's... A I mean, we were of, under contract, so we didn't, but, you know, like other people who weren't under contract at our private Christian university. Oh, fuck it, they, I did. <laughs> um, yeah, it, maybe it's a little bit being nostalgic for those times. But, I mean, we did the podcast because we wanted to bring that back, right? That thing that we loved so much, we wanted to bring that back into our lives again since we live on different continents and it was very hard to keep doing. Mm. So I think it's not too much of a generalization to say part of being human is to care about things bigger than yourself. Now, it's not going to be the you know metaphysics. Not everyone's going to talk about metaphysics over dinner. 
But um, you can talk about issues bigger than yourself. And mm. uh, I think we all care about doing that. So we should not worry so much about, you know, alienating every single person because we actually have ideas. You're not alienating mm. them with your ideas. You're alienating them with your presentation of them or with your lack of care for them, if mm. anything. Mm. Well, amen to that, homie. All right, man. Let's jump into our final segment of the episode. This is our Sticky Leaves. This is where one of us gets to express something that is giving us meaning or joy in a world that might be just... What's the name of that film that we talked about again? In Praise of Nothing. (laughs) In Praise of Nothing. If we're looking into the nothingness, what is that Iggy Pop voice that is going to infuse vitality into our lives? Troy, what's giving you meaning this week? So I'm so glad we just had this kind of deep discussion about politics and culture and critiques of liberalism and all this stuff because i'm about to talk about literal shit right now which is a wonderful way of of capping off that deep and careful discussion um so you know that the nba finals concluded last night right (laughs) right and so i think i have an excuse to talk a little bit about basketball for the last (laughs) time in a while i promise it won't happen for a while after this okay and let's look at a good id in which case it's gonna happen immediately but um (laughs) So a story came out in the last couple of weeks, which just made my heart jump for joy. In all the the greatest uh, short and Freudianist ways. So a little background first. 2008, 11 years ago, the Los Angeles Lakers and the Boston Celtics met in the NBA Finals. It was historic because those two teams are considered to be the greatest rivalry in uh, basketball, in professional basketball. And they hadn't met in the finals since 1987, I think. So it's been a long time, right? And both teams were on the upswing. It was uh, both of their first finals trips in a number of years. And they meet against each other, right? And it's great. Um, Boston has home court. And game one of the finals, the Lakers are winning. And then the star, one of the stars of the Celtics, his name is Paul Pierce, has an Uh. apparent injury where he falls down and is grasping onto his knee. It's a big hubbub was made about it. A wheelchair is brought out. He's put in the wheelchair and taken off of the court. You know about this. Was story, it in right? Boston too? In, of course, it's in Boston. Yes. Yeah. So everyone's getting whipped up. It's very much like a like a wrestling sort of event happening, right? The whole crowd's getting whipped up. Um, Paul Pierce goes back to the locker room for like five or ten minutes, and then comes back out running out of the locker room, comes back in the game, and proceeds to lead Boston to win Game One and ended up blowing the Lakers out in the rest of the series. And this forever became known as the wheelchair game because of the, the theatrics behind the whole thing. Yeah. It was very reminiscent of what Clay Thompson almost did last night in the game where he tore his ACL, came back out, and hit two free throws because you have to shoot the free throws, otherwise you can't come back in the game. And then he proceeded to not come back anyway because his ACL was torn in. It was this huge badass moment, right? And so Boston fans think about Paul Pierce's wheelchair game as being a similar type of event, right? Mm. Well, well, and then there's the famous what is it, the Moses Malone from back in the day? Um, no, you're thinking about um, on the Knicks. Yeah, Fre- who was uh, that? No, uh, oh my God, the center. Yeah, Walt Frazier and Willis Reed. Willis Reed. That's it. Willis Reed. Okay. Yeah, he actually was hurt. And then limped on the court in the first quarter and played like eight minutes and then went out and didn't come back. But the fact that he tried sort of propelled the Knicks to win 
Mm. Uh, like in 72, I think that was. But anyway, um, Laker fans have always had a bit of skepticism. Justified skepticism, oh. I think, about what happened in the wheelchair game. Because the dude got wh- wheelchaired into the locker room. <laughs> he couldn't even walk. And then 10 minutes later, he's running without a limp onto the floor and proceeds to hit several threes like right after that and be fine <laughs> the rest of the series. So Laker fans were always like, huh, this screams us some bullshit, right? So right. for 10 years, we've had this skepticism, this like, uh, you know, JFK shooter on the lawn type of there has to be another explanation to what happened here, right? Something's not right with this. During these playoffs a couple of weeks ago, Paul Pierce is now a uh, commentator on ESPN or something. He comes out and says, I have a confession to make. I didn't get hurt in no. the short game. No. I actually had to go to the bathroom. Here's the thing. There was a conspiracy theory that's existed for the past 10 years that when Paul Pierce fell down, he didn't hurt his knee. He shit his pants. <laughs> literally smeared his basketball shorts with his own shit. And that's why he couldn't get up because it would all fall out of his shorts. Oh my And that he God. asked for a wheelchair. He could go back to the locker room, clean himself up, which takes about eight to ten minutes, and then come running back out like nothing was wrong. Oh. So now Paul Pierce came out after that and said he didn't shit his pants. He just had to go to the bathroom. But that doesn't make any sense. Why call for a wheelchair? Why not just say, hey, coach, take me out for two minutes and then go to the bathroom real quick? Why the wheelchair? It's because he shit his pants. He absolutely I think shit he his definitely pants. shit his pants. He absolutely and there's a whole, shit his pants. There's a whole Sapruder film that exists out there done by a guy named Jason Concepcion who runs the Ringers NBA desktop. YouTube that and watch it. Paul Pierce shit his pants in an NBA game against the Lakers. And I think... Of all of Kobe Bryant's greatest accomplishments, 80, 81 points in a game, five championships, right? Um, being able to make two free throws with the torn Achilles and then walking off the floor like a badass. Making Paul Pierce shit his pants has to be the top five like in that same pantheon of great accomplishments, right? Do you think that he was just such a fast thinker that he shit his pants and he's like, we can use this for our benefit? Or do you think it was just purely embarrassment? Oh, I, there's no way he's that fast of a thing. There's no way. Okay. Dude just shit his pants. <laughs> Didn't know what to do, so we asked for a wheelchair. <laughs> oh my God, that is so amazing. I, I was I, I, so... And he I admitted wish I was... to this without anybody asking. The, the, the conversation we just brought up, oh, the wheelchair game, remember that? He's like, yeah, I got a confession to make. The dude just straight up opened up the opportunity to become a meme. That's amazing. For shooting his pants. In public. This is amazing. I just, I wish I were privy to that conversation. He's laying down on the ground and he's faking an injury and the trainers come over and he's like, hey guys, uh, I shit my pants. I need a fucking wheelchair or my shit's going to come out of my pants. Like, Dude, it's if, you're, roll if you're the trainer, can you imagine the level of just... I know a secret that nobody else knows, and I'm I'm so lucky to know this. <laughs> I wonder, did the other teammates know? I know, right? Like they have to ask him, dude. Like you were grabbing at your knee, like your ACL was torn, and then you come running out ten minutes later. What the hell's going on? Oh, that is so amazing, God. I mean, this happens in 
mixed martial arts more often than you would think. And you can actually go to YouTube and you can type in like MMA fighter poops pants or shits pants <laughs> or whatever. And there it's happened a few times where all of a sudden, like the guy's wearing gray shorts, or I think it's happened with a couple of, of women too, but like they've got gray shorts on. And then all of a sudden there's just like this brown smear that bursts out right where oh, their God. butt crack is. And you're like, oh my God. And then they keep fighting. Um, but you know, you're getting punched in the stomach. You're getting kicked in the stomach. You're getting kneed in the stomach. And if you've already got some sort of stomach problem prior to the fight, and even if you don't, then it could trigger that, you know, a fucking liver punch or kidney punch might create a chain reaction where you're just because <coughs> you clench, right? And you push down on your fucking diaphragm and those muscles clench up and <laughs> I mean, ugh. but it could happen. It happens. That, that makes sense to me. Like I get that in MMA, that kind of be like a necessary evil, right? Yeah. Sometimes you just shit your pants. That just happens. Like the level of physical exertion and sometimes your body is going to evacuate. Right. Yeah. But like, it wasn't like Paul Pierce got jumped by six dudes or got like, you know, uh clotheslined or something. Right. He just like fell down. <laughs> Maybe he ate a pants. big plate of pasta a couple hours beforehand. <laughs> you know, he's trying to carb up to get that, that short burst of energy. And that's why you got to stay lean and eat lean before you do sports folks. Yeah. I don't know, man. I've never shit my pants before i don't know about you but there's some discussion around this some uh, some uh, uh, apologia about yeah sometimes everyone shit their pants like who hasn't right <laughs> like mm. uh me <laughs> <laughs> i mean maybe he had uh like diarrhea right and so and that's why he couldn't stand up it wasn't like that it was like lumps in his shorts but it was more a squirty kind of thing oh yeah so maybe that definitely it. was that yeah yeah for sure so I mean, I can understand that because I've I've had it before where you're like you're sweating because you're out in public and you're like, I'm literally going to shit myself. I mean, did I tell you about like probably my most embarrassing adult moment ever? Well, I got to know now. Oh, my God. OK. I don't know if I've ever. Are you willing to put this out for public consumption? Uh, I mean, it's just me and you. So, <laughs> OK, so I'm in fucking Scotland. <laughs> oh, my God. So I'm in Scotland. And I was living in on the East Coast, but I was commuting through to the West Coast quite a bit for acting reasons. Like I was doing shows and theater and like producing stuff and whatever. So I was commuting through quite a bit, right? And normally I would take a train and the trains in the UK are great. They're super convenient. And at the time um, I was doing research, so I had a student ID. So the prices were also really cheap, which is great. I mean, they're pretty expensive if you don't have those types of uh, concession cards, but I did. So I would commute all the time and it was great. It was super convenient and I would go through at least two days a week and there's bathrooms and they have like food carts and you can get tea and coffee and it's not like an amazing selection of stuff, but it has all the basic amenities that you would need and the seats are pretty damn comfortable and it's a smooth ride and it's just a straight shot from East Coast to Glasgow and then back, right? So one night, um, oh, you know what? Actually, this is the opposite. I was living in Glasgow at this point, and I was commuting through to teach in Dundee. That's what it was. And so I'm fucking, um, uh, I think I had gone out the night before, and I was super hungover, 
and I got Indian food at the end of the night, and maybe, it, or maybe I got like some sort of like beef burger or something like that, whatever, it was shitty like late night kebab food, and I remember I was actually doing like a tutorial class, and I was in the classroom, and I was actually like, you know when you're like super sick and hungover, and you feel like you're going to shit yourself, or you're going to throw up, and you're like sweating, and you get all pale, and you feel all hot? Mm. It was like that in the classroom, and I actually was... Like, because I used to do, uh, you know, like I would arrange the tables sometimes at the, the students' chairs, sometimes in a circle, and uh, but I had to like sit on the floor because I needed to just be as close to the ground as possible. And I actually I had one student that like brought a trash can over, was like, just in case you're gonna throw up. And I was kind of a joke, but also kind of serious. And I was like, <laughs> man, I'm in a bad way, guys. And but I pushed through, I powered through, and I was like, man, I just got to get on this train and get back to Glasgow and get home. And the trains were closed. Like something had happened where there was oh, either, uh, I don't know if someone had gotten hit on the train tracks or if there was some bad weather or something like that or they were just doing construction, but the train tracks were closed. So they hired buses. And the buses, one, are about twice as long. And two, they're much more bumpy. And so I'm like, fuck, man, okay, whatever. I just need to get on this fucking bus. So I get on this bus, and I'm sitting in the very back of the bus. And I'm sitting there, and I'm feeling bad. And this is nighttime. You know, at this point, it's like 7, 8 at night, maybe in the winter. So it's pitch black dark. And I'm like, fuck, man, this is not good. I need to just get fucking home. And I'm sitting there, and uh, I realize that there's no bathroom on the bus. And I'm like, you got to be fucking kidding me. There's no bathroom (laughs) on this bus. I'm like, Jesus Christ. Well, all of a sudden, I start getting sick like I'm going to fucking throw up. And I'm like, what do I do, man? I can't fucking throw up. You so, got your backpack, right? Or your bag? No, I didn't have anything. I didn't have anything at this point. I had my my books with me and my binder with me. I didn't carry a bag <laughs> with me because I was just there for one night. And so I just kind of like I just kind of like roughed it, you know? So I didn't even bring a bag with me. I was trying to be like my, I don't know, vagabondy self. I don't Let's know what the fuck. Lesson, always have a bag. <sighs> bro <laughs> i'm in the very back seat i just lean over and throw up in the seat next to me oh, God. <laughs> and i was like i was so embarrassed i'm like bro you're a 30 year old man and you just threw up on a public bus and i was like what do i do <laughs> i was like what do i do and i'm sitting there and i'm like oh my god this is awful so then guess what happens the bus breaks down <laughs> and we're stranded about an hour outside of home and I'm still sitting there and I'm like I'm gonna die I'm gonna die and then all of a sudden bro I got a shit and I'm talking like <laughs> the hangover I just got food poisoning because I had either like a gnarly spicy curry the night before or some sort of bad kebab food whatever it was I knew that this was not like the stomach is rumbling I'm like this is not good bro first of all I just threw up in a seat next to me on a public bus second of all I got a shit now so and this bus broke down and I'm like can I go shit in the bushes, like off the side of the road? I was like, maybe I can do that. And so I go talk to the bus driver. I explain the situation. He's like, oh, dude, I understand. He's like, we got a new bus coming. And I'm like, okay, thanks, man. And he's like, and this new bus has a bathroom. It has a toilet on it. And I'm like, sweet. The new bus comes. I get on that fucking bus, man. I run. First thing I do, I go straight into the toilet, and I just unload, right? Just <laughs> gnarly. And I was like, oh, my God, this is so good. <laughs> This is premium content right here. (laughs) Toilet's broken, bro. It doesn't flush. Oh, my God. (laughs) So I just just destroyed the back of a bus with my throw up. And then I just go into this bathroom that I think is going to be my savior. That's going to prevent future problems. 
And it wasn't. Because I know now, for the rest of that hour-plus journey, my fucking shit was just sitting there pumping out fumes for whoever was close. And it was one of those ones where the toilet was actually towards the middle of the bus, not even at the back of the bus. Oh, no. So it was at, like, the middle where it's, like, next to this emergency exit. And I was like, what the fuck, man? And so I just then, I just went to the back of the bus, and I I think I put my hood up, and I just, like, slinked down into my chair, and I just, like, hid. And I was like, I am so embarrassed. I'm an adult human being, and I just threw up in the back of a public bus, and then I just fucking shit all up in this broken toilet. I am such a disgrace. <laughs> yeah, man. Oh my god, this is like a, a scene from Curb Your Enthusiasm or something. Ugh, it was, it was, that's exactly what it was. It felt like that, because it was just so uncomfortable and ironic, and it's like a comedy of errors, but it's like, my body failed me. It was one of those things where I couldn't, I couldn't not do it. I was like, I don't know what else to do. I mean, there was no, it's not like there's windows that I could roll down and throw up outside the window. I guess I could have run up to the bus, to the, to the front of the bus and been like, hey dude, I got to puke, can you pull over? But I didn't even have time. I couldn't move. I was like, if I stand up, I'm going to fucking shit myself when I was in the back of the bus. So I was like, I don't know what to do. So I just fucking threw up on the seat next to me. Uh, it was awful, man. It was awful. So if it's it was that kind of thing, I have total sympathy for Paul Pierce. I would ask for a wheelchair too. You could have just thrown up into your shirt and then gone the rest of the way without a shirt and been like Iggy Pop style. Realized your dream of being Iggy Pop. That would have been much smarter. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That would have been good. I've done that before when I was I was really drunk one time in like the Bay Area. It was actually last year after my sister's wedding. And, uh, and I came home without a shirt. And I remember I kind of forgot what had happened. <laughs> but I remember that I got sick and I ended up just cleaning it up with my shirt. And then I just ripped my shirt off and threw it away. <laughs> and so I didn't have a shirt for the rest. And so I ended up getting, getting a fucking taxi home without a shirt. They probably see this like drunk dude standing out in the middle of the road without a shirt on trying to wave down a taxi. And they think I'm some sort of like crazy fucker. And they're not even going to pick me up. And I told the guy what happened. And he was like, that sucks, man. I'm like, I know. <laughs> hey, you just tell him I'm in a Stooges cover band. There you go. That's Five right, songs. man. That's right. So... Oh, that's a great well, thank story. Thank you so much for that story. That was wonderful. Yeah, it's fucking embarrassing. That's my so send us your embarrassing stories, listeners. What is the most embarrassing thing that's happened to you uh, as an adult <laughs> or even as a younger person? Let's get a, a Twitter thread going of uh, hashtag Austin stories. Yeah, I've probably got a lot. of stories in this van, I have to admit. I woke up one day on my friend's sofa completely naked, and I have no clue how I got there. I have no clue why I was naked. And then all of my clothes, this is the weirdest part. All of my clothes were on the floor next to me, perfectly folded, but soaking wet. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I have a quick one to tell about you, and you can delete this if you feel like this is not appropriate or whatever. No, it's all Um, good. But one time you came home to Los Angeles to visit uh, your family and stuff, and you were going to come up and see... Uh, me and some other, other people for a day or so. And yeah. you got really drunk the night before. And apparently, um, well, I'll, I'll flash back to that. One of our mutual friends, Diana, who's been on the show, um, went to go pick you up to bring you up to where to where I was, right? And she says she showed up and <laughs> at the time you had prearranged to meet and you were asleep on the couch, I believe, and yeah. bleeding from your yeah. face. Yeah. And was the table broken? Uh, yeah. So what had happened is 
had gotten super drunk with my buddy Mikey the night before, and apparently, and I obviously don't remember this, but apparently when we got back to his place, I just like walked in the door and fell straight forward <laughs> into the table. <laughs> that visual, I'm, I'm so sorry because I'm sure that it hurt a lot, but that visual is amazing. It didn't hurt because I was so drunk. <laughs> I have like no pain receptors. They were numbed. And so I didn't know what happened, but Diana calls and she's like, hey, dude, where are you? Because I wasn't at my house. I was at my friend's house. And so she thought she was going to come pick me up at my house. So I had to like give her the new address, right? And uh, and I'm like talking with her and I was like doing, you know, one of those things where you wake up in the morning and you like rub your eyes or whatever. And I went to like touch my face and I felt like crusty stuff all over my face. And I was like, what the fuck? And then I felt like pain. And I was like, what the? And then I looked at my hand and I had like blood on my hands. And then I'm like, what the? I'm bleeding. And my buddy Mikey's in the other room. And I think his bedroom door was open. And he's like, oh, yeah, bro. He's like, you don't remember what happened? And he starts <laughs> cracking up. And then I'm on the phone with Diana. And she's like, you're bleeding. And I'm like, yeah. And so I run into the bathroom and I look at myself. And my face is covered with blood. And I was like, Jesus, dude, what happened, bro? <laughs> Yeah. I don't know, man. I've been drunk before, but these these kinds of things don't happen to me. <laughs> I guess I'm just uber responsible when I'm drunk. There's been a few things, but nothing to the level of these things that are so just hilarious. Yeah, I mean, I guess in a way I'm very fortunate that I haven't stepped out in front of a car or I haven't like tripped or something yeah. like that. Well, the know? best thing about, the most awesome thing about this story is that you still came and hung out. <laughs> oh, yeah, dude. <laughs> and you still had cuts all over your face. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I actually have a photo from that day still. Yeah, 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 I remember that one. <laughs> oh, God, I know. I mean, you know, sometimes life throws you curveballs, and you just got to adapt and go with it. Yeah, bro. you just take it, man. You just you just get a wheelchair. That's going to be my metaphor, you know? <laughs> when life throws you an unexpected shitstorm, get a wheelchair. <laughs> Sick. All right, let's go ahead and wrap up the episode. Thank you guys for tuning in. Thank you, patrons, for suggesting that we tackle the Zizek Peterson debate. I think that if I don't think that it would have actually registered much on our on our radar to really address it, especially in a two part series, because you know, I mean, Troy and I spent so much time with Zizek, and I think, like you said, you had your presuppositions about Peterson, so you probably you probably wouldn't have found that sympathetic connection had you not watched the debate. So it it was yeah, totally. probably productive all around you know i think so exactly i'm so glad that we did because otherwise i feel like you know i knew everything about zizek i don't care about peterson i have no desire to watch this but i'm really glad that i did and it helped burst some of those presuppositions and was really engaging and, and gave me a lot of opportunity for thought cool um and so just as a reminder for listeners if you go to movie.com slash owls at dawn that's m-u-b-i.com slash owls at dawn you can get a free extended trial for 30 days for that amazing streaming service go check out all their stuff in their library they always have cool stuff and it's always fresh because a new film comes on every single day so they filter through all kinds of amazing stuff every year so check that shit out. And then, of course, you can also go to patreon.com slash owls at dawn if you find value in the show and to get access to bonus content. A new newsletter will be coming out probably in the next week or so, as well as uh, hopefully a new bonus episode as well in the next um, next week or so as well. So check that shit out. And then, of course, if you want to be able to request future episode topics like this two-part series, uh, you can become a patron as well. So patreon.com slash owls at dawn. Uh, where where can people find us, Troy? 
You can find us on Twitter at owls underscore at underscore Don. You can also email us at owls at donpodcast at gmail.com. And a reminder also, if you want to leave us a five-star rating and review on iTunes slash Apple Podcasts slash whatever else is going to be in the future, you can do that. And if you ask a question in a review and we can answer it in a minute or two, we'll do so on the next show. Sweet. Sounds good. I think that's pretty much it, unless there's something I'm forgetting. Just one more thing, dude. What's that? Das Vadani Americana.